This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally, or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Study and show yourself approved of God as a workman who is not ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. Maybe you are tuning in to WAGP.net or in your car somewhere. And this is your first time ever listening. What do we do during the Bible line? We take people's questions about Scripture, whether it's what it means, how to apply it, maybe a challenge that you're facing in your life and you want biblical counsel. If we can be of help, as Rick just shared those numbers, locally the 843 exchange is 525-1859. There's a toll-free number, though most people don't need it anymore because of cell phone Um, deals and packages, but the toll-free number, if you're interested, is 877. The call letter is WAGP980. And if it's helpful to you, you can uh, call and dictate your question, though we will tell you right off we give preference to live callers. Sometimes people also email us and they say, it takes so long. Well, just call live and you'll get hopefully an immediate answer. But you can email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is TBL. That stands for the Bible line, TBL at WAGP.net. All right, Rick, I think we're ready to begin. So uh, what do we have first, a live caller? or actually, Londie from Platteville, Wisconsin says, I've been struggling with what the Bible has to say about the qualification of elders and deaconesses in the church. Could Dr. Berge direct me to resources that I could look at regarding this issue? I really respect his godly opinion. A woman in our church wants to be a deaconess and has been divorced years ago before she was a Christian has been remarried for years and recently was baptized in our church. Any light you could shed on this topic would be greatly appreciated. Well, there's really two questions here. One, can A, women serve as deacons, and B, uh, can someone who's been married before and then married again through divorce serve as a deacon or deaconess? So there's really two questions. Let me deal with the first one. Uh, whether a woman can serve as a deacon. Uh, The passage at hand that people uh, will discuss comes from 1 Timothy chapter 3. Paul, in this particular pastoral epistle, is giving uh, qualifications for an elder, uh, which, which, by the way, are male qualifications. Uh, He speaks of such things as An overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, so on, not addicted to wine or pugnacious, but gentle. He must be one who manages his own house well. If a man on air does not know how to manage his own house, how will he take care of the church of God, not a new convert, and so on? He must have a good reputation with those outside. Then it says deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. And so now he begins to give the qualifications for a deacon. 
And in these qualifications, much like in the qualification for, a husband, uh, for an elder, is the husband of one wife. Now, there is one little um, interruption, we might say, but it's really not an interruption if it's understood contextually, where it says women must likewise be dignified. Now, what is that a reference to? Some would say, well, this is a reference to deaconesses, but I don't really think so. Uh, He has been discussing the qualifications for a deacon in verses 8, 9, and 10, and then in verse 12, he continues in verses 12, 13, 14, and 15 on male deacons. So is there this little insert here on women deacons? I really don't think so. Now, um, the word is gunikos, and it is a word that can mean women in general. It's in the plural, or it can mean wives. Interestingly, the King James, the New King James, uh, the ESV, the NIV, and many other translations render it the wives of deacons. Now, it is true that's interpretive. Uh, The New American Standard, more conservatively, (coughs) just says uh, women. They could have put wives, but then you might ask, well, what wives are they referring to? So since the flow of the argument is on male deacons in the church, most in the history of the church have taken this to be a reference to the wives of deacons. So I think those translations that I just mentioned that render it in that fashion are not incorrect. Um, And we might also just step back for a moment and ask, Uh, Where does the office of deacon come from? Uh, The office of elder is really an Old Testament office. It's just refined and honed as it relates to the new covenant, but it's actually found in the Old Testament, whereas the office of deacon did not exist in the Old Testament. There were parallel uh, roles that some people would play, like in the temple and so on, that would in many ways mimic the office of deacon, but it's not an ordered specific office that God uh, announces until the new covenant. So when he writes the church at Philippi, for instance, he speaks about um, the elders and the deacons who reside there in Philippi. Only two offices uh, by the time uh, really that are ongoing when Paul writes Philippians. There was a third office and some others like a prophets and apostles, but those were early church offices. But in Acts 6, if you remember, a complaint arose on the part of the Hellenistic Jews against the native Hebrews. So you had your local Hebraic Jews, and then you had your Greek-speaking Jews that came in from other parts of the empire uh, because there were three specific holidays, according to Deuteronomy 16.16, that a Jewish man if he was going to obey the law, would come to Israel uh, to participate there in the temple. One of those uh, concerned what we call Pentecost or Shavuot, and it was the 50th day of the Feast of Weeks. And on that particular celebration, if you remember this Shavuot, this Pentecost that they had been observing for hundreds and hundreds of years was different and that what it prophesied, what it predicted, what it foreshadowed was fulfilled. And so no one wanted to leave. This was the promise. Messiah had come. The new covenant was being enacted that God had promised in Jeremiah and Ezekiel and other places where he had placed the spirit of God within people. 
And so they were just absolutely thrilled, and they stayed. And what happened, of course, is funds ran out, and some people needed some help. And it seemed like some of the uh, people who had come in from other parts of the empire were being overlooked. And so they went to the apostles. They summoned the 12. They said, look, it's not, we're, it's not that we're above this, but it's not desirable for us uh, to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. And it's very easy sometimes for even pastors today to do things that will take away from the primary responsibilities that God has called them to lead in, in the church. And so he will go on and say, brethren, select from among yourselves seven men of good reputation, full of the spirit and of wisdom. But we, the apostles, will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. So they weren't above serving tables, but they knew it was not desirable for them to serve tables because if they did, they'd get bogged down in these details where they couldn't give the study and prayer uh, and ministry the word that went both to believers and unbelievers that God had called them to principally focus. And by the way, when Paul recounts in the pastoral epistles what a pastor today should do, because understand all apostles were elders. Obviously not all elders are apostles. There are no apostles today. No one can possibly meet the qualifications of having seen with their own eyes the risen Lord, having been personally selected by him because he's in heaven and he's not down here knocking on doors and choosing people today. And if those first two qualifications were uh, true, then you would do the signs, wonders, and miracles that only an apostle can do. Now, there's a whole new movement today where they say they've got modern-day apostles. They're just wrong. Um, they're, they're just deceived. In either case, select seven men. Now, there's the word man or men that is the word anthropos uh, that can refer to men and women alike. And so sometimes, like in the new New American Standard, when the word anthropos is used, and this is the translation that just came out in 2020, uh, they'll say men and women. Or if the term brethren is being used generically, they'll say brothers and sisters. And they'll put in italics because they want to note it's not in the original, but it's certainly implied by the original. Well, this is not the word anthropos. We get our word anthropology. It's the word arnir. Seven specifically men men of the male gender. And this, these are the first deacons, and then they're named, and they're, these are all men who are selected. Now, understand the word deacon is used in a technical and a non-technical sense. In one sense, every Christian is a deacon because the word deacon simply means a servant. So Jesus said, he that would be great among you, let him be the deacon, the servant of all. And I might add that in many countries of the world, where they are reading the Bible in their own tongue, they just translate the word deacon in a number of different settings and contexts, and they leave it up to the reader to interpret what's meant. In most English translations today, we uh, will distinguish the office from someone who's just a servant by translating when the office is being discussed with the English word deacon, diaconus in Greek, instead of uh, and then we'll use the word servant in other cases, but it's actually the same word. So you really have a tough case building uh, an argument for the office of deacon. People 
point to Phoebe, but that's just a general use of the word deacon, servant, just like it is when Jesus said, he that is great among you must be the servant of all. Um, So with that said, I don't think there are any women deacons today in the church. Every woman, just like every man, should be a deacon and that we are all called to be servants, but not technically in the office. Your second question, uh, it kind of assumes, well, this is a possibility for a woman to be a deacon, and then you're asking, can a woman be a deacon who's been divorced? And that's a whole other question, and the answer is no. Really simply, uh, when he speaks of the husband of one man, and that's a male qualification, I tell me how a woman can be the husband of one man, and I can tell you how she can be a pastor or how she can be a deacon, but she can't. Uh, there have been a number of different ways to approach it. Roman Catholics, of course, who practice celibacy, say, well, the priest, the cardinal, the bishop, the pope is married to the church, so to speak. That's the wife, the church. And then when it speaks of, well, his household and his children being under control, they relegate that to the congregation or the members in the congregation. Real problems with that, obviously. You have to spiritualize the text to be able to sustain a position that's false to begin with, that all priests, so to speak, uh, should be single and not married. Uh, A second view that has been held concerning the husband of one wife is people argue that a person to be an elder or to be a deacon must be married. Well, I don't think that's really in view because the Apostle Paul makes it very clear that while it is indeed God's norm for most people to be married, it's very much the exception that God would uh, create a person in a way where he's called them to be single their whole lives. God has dictated most people to be married. And by marriage, of course, I'm speaking between a man and a woman. Uh, You can call two men being married a marriage or two women being married a marriage, but it's not a marriage. It doesn't matter that the Supreme Court of the United States says that it is. The Supreme Justice of the Supreme Court of the Universe says it's not, and that's what's important. Uh, But I don't think that uh, it's required for someone to serve in the office of deacon or elder, again, male offices, that they be married. Paul was not married, and yet he was an elder. You say, how do you know he was an elder? Because like Peter, the apostle, uh, they're referred to as fellow elders. And again, all elders are pastors. The word elder, pastor, whatever, it means the same. I think we've got like three three people uh, on the line, but the, we'll be with you in just a second. Some say that this is a prohibition against, uh, and by the way, so Paul would be disqualified, and so would the Lord Jesus, who's the chief shepherd of the church. Some have said the husband of one wife is a prohibition against bigamy or polygamy. That's ridiculous. Someone who's a bigamist or a polygamist, someone who has two wives or three or more, uh, they would be qualified for church discipline not to be an elder or deacon in the church. In fact, under Roman law, it was already illegal, like it is in America, though that's beginning to change. Uh, Somerville, Massachusetts uh, adopted polyandry marriage, Uh, So it would probably go to the Supreme Court. But look, if two men can get married, why can't someone also have five wives if they so choose? Uh, It's just a logical projection of where we are headed. Um, Historically, the church fathers on took this to be a reference to someone who's only been married once. 
and there is a restricted view and a less restricted view. The restricted view says that if you're married, your wife dies, uh, and you get married again, you can no longer be a pastor. I don't think that's really what's in view, but I can respect it and that they're trying to cling to uh, what the Scripture says. Most have taken it in the history of the church that this is a prohibition against someone who has been um, married, divorced, and then remarried. Uh, why? Because God's against divorced people? Certainly not. But God wants to model, and the two remaining offices of the church, the office of elder or deacon, the ideal. Why? Because he hates divorce, and he hates it because it tears apart two living people, and he hates what it does to children. Some kind of spiritualize it today and say, well, he has to be kind of a one-woman man in his heart. I don't think that's in view at all. Uh, he's already will speak of temperate or self-controlled. And, you know, I don't think he's saying a non-flirtatious person. And But today, because divorce is so widespread, that's where a lot of pastors have gone on this. Or typically, too, they say this is an argument against polygamy or bigamy. So, again, a divorced person can serve in any capacity in the church. They can be missionaries. They can lead Sunday school, anything at all. They just can't serve in one of these two offices. And even if every person, by the way, met, and there are not one or two qualifications, there are 21 qualifications given for an elder in the New Testament, even if someone met all of those qualifications, only 3 or 4% of the body of Christ would ever serve in the office anyway. So it's not like your reward is less, or you're less significant in the kingdom of God, nothing like that. Those are just lies from the evil one. Uh, they ask for resources. I would send them to Acts 6. I have a message on it, and I would encourage them to listen to 1 Timothy 3 and the messages I have on that, and I go into great detail. Good question. Let's go to the next one. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Alberto is on line one. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, yes, Alberto. Good morning, gentlemen. Yes. I was listening to a sermon from John MacArthur on the first John chapter four, verse one through six, on the test of spirits. And he's talking about, you know, if a person doesn't confess that Jesus came in the flesh, but what about if I, if I if a false teacher teaches that, you know, that Jesus did come in the flesh and and still or and still teach other false teachings to draw you know, use that debate to draw people into his fold, or gullible, you know, lonely women into his fold, to believe that Jesus came in the flesh, and but still teach other false teachings, or or if, like example, it says if that verse in First John two nineteen said if they were with us, they would remain with us, but not all of us were were of us, we remain with us. So what about if I'm under a pastor? Was teaching false teaching and I leave the congregation. That's, that doesn't mean I'm denying the truth because I left from them. I left because he's false teaching. So, so how do you balance that out? And and also, uh, I was kind of a question too. I said, if you deny Jesus Christ is the Christ and the Father and the Son, you are the Antichrist. But what about vice versa? If I deny Jesus and not the Father, or or I don't deny Jesus and I deny the Father, so that doesn't make me an Antichrist. Okay, so there's a lot of questions in there. Let me just see if I can unwrap a few of those. And in First John two nineteen, which comes chronologically uh, in the order of the passages you quote, he says, "Children, it is the last hour. Just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, even now many Antichrists have appeared, 
period. From this, we know it's the last hour. So the last hour began on the day of Pentecost. We entered into what's known as the last days. And in the New Testament, anyway, the word last days begins with the start of Pentecost. And and it's interesting because this term last days or last hour here is a reminder that the return of Christ is imminent that he could come at any moment. It's called the catching up of the church. From the Latin Bible, we get the term rapture. And so the rapture is a non-prophetic event in the sense that it's not prophetically driven. Nothing has ever needed to happen for the rapture to take place. Now, if uh, the Lord pulled off the rapture in the year 200, some of the uh, events that will take place in the seven years that follow would be challenging, but not for God. Like we can speak today that you can't buy or sell anything uh, and do any kind of financial transaction unless you have the mark. We can look today and say, well, we can see how this would uh, flesh itself out very easily in the year that we live in. Well, God could have made it happen in that day as well. He could have rebuilt the temple uh, after it was destroyed by uh, Titus Vespucian in 70 AD. He could have done that in the year 200 if he so chose. He would have had to have gathered the Jews back into the land to make it happen because they were driven out finally, not just in 70 AD, but the last vestige in, by, um, uh, in 135 AD with that rebellion that took place. So in either case, the fact that there are so many things that are happening today. Like, for instance, the two witnesses who are going to be killed and wiped out uh, during uh, the seven-year tribulation period where their bodies will uh, lay dead for three years. And the whole world, the Bible says, will watch. We can see through satellites and TV. Well, God could have pictured them on clouds in the sky across the world if he had so chosen. So it's always been imminent. Um, But uh, there is coming a day when, and so there have always been antichrists, those who are against Christ, and Peter affirms this same truth in 2 Peter chapter 2. There are false teachers in the Old Testament day, and there's false teachers in our day as well. But there's coming a day when the antichrists, uh, the antichrists of all antichrists, will step on the scene. But speaking of these false teachers, they went out from us. He's not talking about a believer leaving a flock. And so if you're in a crummy church where there's false teaching and gross compromise, um, you should leave. Why? Because God teaches biblical separation. And I have messages on that. That's a whole nother thing in and of itself. But these false teachers went out from us. They were not really of us. If they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But they went out in order that it might be shown that they are are not of us. So these are people who go out and they renounce the biblical faith, the faith delivered once and for all through the apostles. And they either totally just reject it, turn their back on it, or they change the message. They preach another gospel to use Paul's words from Galatians chapter 1. This has nothing to do with a believer leaving a crummy church or denomination. You should leave if you're in a bad setting. 1 Timothy 4 is an example, 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 6, of a false teacher, because this is a book that is written pre-Gnosticism, 
where there was a denial of certain basic truths concerning the humanity and the deity of Christ. Uh, This is an example of many examples. So, beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. How do you test the spirits? By taking the revelation of Scripture, what Jude argues, the faith, not just faith, but the faith, which is articular, meaning the body of truth God gave us. We call it the Bible. And you put their doctrine into the mirror of the Bible. And so that's how you test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know, the spirit of God, every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Well, they denied that and they denied the actual physical, literal humanity of Christ, that he was God in human flesh. So this is just an example of testing the spirits. Anyway, that's a good question. Let's go to the next one. We have more people waiting. Indeed we do. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, let's go to our next caller. Thanks for holding. You're on the air. Hey, good morning. Hey, good morning. Yeah, this is David uh, from Columbia. I just had a real quick question um, about someone who believes in uh, post-trip and they're actually using Matthew 24, all the events in Matthew 24 leading up to more specifically uh, Matthew 24, 31. Okay. And they, they're using that to say that at the end of all those events, that, that that's when the, uh, the, the rapture actually happens. And so I just didn't know if, what I could use to kind of uh, prove the point of, you know, pre-trib versus post-trib. Yeah, no, it's a great question. And so uh, there are several arguments that you could make for a pre-tribulational rapture. Uh, Let me just say that the Olivet Discourse is describing events that will take place during the seven-year period. And we like to take a lot of these things today and make them even today. You know, they'll, like Jesus speaks, for instance, that um, let no one mislead you. Many will come in my name saying I'm the Messiah and, and will mislead many. Ah, there it is. You know, we've got people today saying they represent Christ. Some even say they are Christ. They are Messiah. Uh, there are men in Israel who are deemed to be the Messiah today by some people. And Jesus said, don't let them mislead you or you'll be hearing of wars and rumors of wars. And it seems like we've got a lot more of those, you know, th- this must be the birth pangs or you know, where nation rises against nation. And, you know, there'll be famines and earthquakes and Luke adds pestilences. You know, we, we've got a lot of those, you know, just seems more hurricanes, earthquakes, volcanoes. You know, this must be it. No, these are events that Jesus is describing that will take place during the tribulation period. Uh, these are events that are going to happen after the church has caught up and removed. For instance, he'll go on and say, um, This gospel of the kingdom, verse 14, shall be preached in the whole world as a testimony to all the nations. And then the end will come. People will say, oh, you know, we're so close to preaching the gospel and reaching the final unreached people groups of the world. And some say in 20 years we'll have it all done. And they've been saying that for about 40 years. But in either case, no, this will take place during the tribulation period. How so? Well, when the church is removed, 144,000 Jews are supernaturally converted, and they preach the gospel to the world. And, and John sees from their ministry, they're described in a couple of chapters in the Revelation. But, for instance, in Revelation 7, 
where God describes these 144,000 Jews, he then writes, After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in right. Who are these people? These are the people, he goes on to say, who came out of the tribulation period. Uh, I said, My Lord, you know, and he said, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. So what we really haven't pulled off in 2,000 years is going to be completed during this final uh, seven-year time frame in human history. My, my point is, is that's the thrust all the way through this section of Scripture. He's describing what is going to happen. They will deliver you to tribulation. They will kill you, and you'll be hated by all nations. Who's going to be hated by all nations? The Jewish people. That's largely what's in view. They're converted, and the Scripture's clear. Zechariah chapter 3, later in Revelation, all the nations of the world will come against Israel. So the rapture really is not even in this particular section of Scripture. Um, some will say, well, yeah, it's later in verse 40, two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be left. Two women will be grinding the mill, one will be taken, one will be left. Well, the, the ones who are taken are taken away in judgment. The ones who are left are true believers, and they're going to enter into the kingdom of God. So here, here's, let me just give you like one example of not taking a, a, a pre-tribulational rapture, one problem problematic example. If the church is raptured at the same time the second coming happens, in other words, that's the post-tribulational view. They don't deny a rapture. Every believer affirms the rapture of the church. I don't care if they're a premillennial, postmillennial, amillennial, every believer believes in the rapture of the church and that they affirm that we shall not all sleep, but we shall be caught up in the twinkling of an eye. They believe that we're going to be caught up. We're going to get a resurrection body. Uh, that's called the rapture. Now, I don't care what you call it. Uh, it's In Greek, it's harpazo. Um, we translate it in most English translations, snatched away or caught up. Uh, in the Latin Bible, it's raptere, and we get the term rapture from it. So the rapture is going to take place. The question is, is the rapture and the second coming one synonymous event? Now, the problem with, say, the amillennialists, um, millennial means a thousand, and so the amillennialist says there is no thousand-year reign of Christ on the earth, that the next event at the end of the tribulation for some, some have said, they're called preterists, that all of Matthew 24, with the exception of Christ coming on the clouds in glory, took place in the first century by 70 A.D. It's called the preterist view, preterer from Latin meaning past. And they, they take a past view, and there's no futuristic um, dimension to what's happening, that this is all history. That's just nonsense. You have to spiritualize the Bible and really distort it and twist it to come to that kind of an interpretation. But some would say, like the amillennialists, that Christ is not literally going to come back and stand on the earth, like Zechariah 14 says, and split the mountain in two. He's not literally going to cause a river 
to flow from the Temple Mount all the way down to the Dead Sea, so much so that the Dead Sea, if you've been there, there's no living organisms in it, zero. Now, there was an article that came out a couple of years ago, and they said, oh, we have found some living organisms around the Dead Sea. What they have found was because the Dead Sea is being drained so fast, when I went to Israel in 1989, and by the way, God willing, we're going again in May of 2022. We have room for 16 spots. You can go to searchthescriptures.org if you're interested in finding out information and call us and we'll answer any questions you might have. But when I went there for the first time to Israel in 1989, the water came right up to the road. Now it's about a mile away. That's how much that place has receded. Um, And because it has receded so much, there have been sinkholes and everything else in some places where fresh water can actually uh, find a place to sit over some of the vegetation that is now grown there, and there's a little bit of life. But in the Dead Sea itself, there's no life. Well, God says the Dead Sea is going to be made alive and that men will fish in it and dry their nets alongside of it. That has never literally happened. And so the amillennialist has to spiritualize the text and says, well, you know, Jesus is coming back. He's just going to take us all to heaven and that's the end. The post-tribulationalist, he has real problems with interpreting a post-tribulational rapture. Let me give you one example. I give 10 in my series on the Revelation. So you might want to consider listening. I do, there's 72 hours of preaching that I did, verse by verse by verse by verse by verse on the book of Revelation. And if you really want to understand it, I don't skip anything. But of course, God God makes a promise that he is going to take the church out before this great and terrible day that is going to come upon the earth. In either case, um, let's just say for the sake of argument that we are snatched up, caught up, raptured, given a resurrection body like Christ, because that's what happens at the rapture. We go up in the air, we meet the Lord in the air, and then we do a U-turn and we come back straight on the planet. Well, who do we have then entering the tribulation period? All believers in resurrection bodies. Okay. Well, at the end of the revelation, uh, we are told very specifically that the devil who had been bound for a thousand years is going to be loosed. When the thousand years are completed, Revelation 27, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations, which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them together for the war. The number of them is like the sand of the seashore, a huge multitude. And they came up on the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints in the beloved city, being Jerusalem, and fire came down and devoured them. Then the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire where the beast and the false prophet are also, and they'll be tormented with them day and night forever and ever. Who are these people that at the end of the thousand years, Satan is deceiving? How can someone be deceived in a resurrected body? How can someone who is eternally secure then be cast into the lake of fire? So you see, this is just one of many problems they have. However, if the next event is the catching up of the church, where you are immediately transformed, your salvation is completed, you meet the Lord in the air, 
And then seven plus years later, you come back with the Lord. First, he comes for his saints. Then he comes back with his saints. And he sets his feet on the Mount of Olives, just as the scripture says in Zechariah 14. Never happened. And and then he separates the Gentile nations that were against uh, Israel, the way they treated Israel, uh, what you did to the least of these, my brethren, from true believers. And the valley of decision that is described in Joel, it's prophesied there where there from the Temple Mount, Christ will separate living believers from unbelievers. So all be gathered there and he'll separate living believers from unbelievers. And only those who are genuine believers will enter into the tribulation period. These are people who survived the tribulation. Now, remember here in the Olivet Discourse, Jesus said, unless those days had been cut short, no one could survive. So if God didn't intervene somehow, there'd be no one in their in natural bodies to be able to enter into the kingdom. But he had made some promises to Israel that were unconditional in nature. The fact that it's a thousand years long is revealed in the New Testament. The fact that there will be a kingdom on the earth is revealed in the Old Testament. We're just given the length of it in the New Testament. And so if there are believers who enter in their natural bodies, and once you're saved, you're always saved, but you have children and grandchildren, you live for a thousand years. The earth is going to be repopulated. Look, I have five children, but just because I'm a child of God doesn't automatically make my children children of God. God has children. He has no grandchildren. Now, thank God they're all believers and confess Christ and walk with him. But that doesn't mean that the children of tribulation saints and the grandchildren of tribulation saints and the great-grandchildren of tribulation saints are automatically saved. You say, how could they not be saved? Jesus will be ruling on the earth. Why does he have to rule with a rod of iron? Because there will be unbelievers who will be born during this thousand-year period and not all will receive him. You say, how is that possible? How would they not receive him? Why did they not receive him when he was here the first time? And one of the functions of the millennial kingdom is to show really the depravity of man and how sick we really are by nature. So you, you have to eradicate a literal, plain, historical interpretation of these texts of Scripture. And you have to spiritualize them. So the post-tribulationist has a lot of problems. And that's why a lot of people who don't deny the rapture, but they have, they read passages like this. They say, well, you know, that we're just all going to heaven and that's it. And they spiritualize the whole book of Revelation. Interestingly, I have a full set of John Calvin's commentaries. He wrote a commentary on every book of the Bible except Revelation. Why? Because he didn't know what to do with it. He was just, he, he just didn't know what to do with it. Jesus said in, uh, to the church at Philadelphia, Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not but lie. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I, uh, that I have loved you because you have kept the word of my perseverance. And perseverance is something that Jesus speaks of in the Olivet Discourse. He says, He that perseveres to the end, he who endures to the end, Matthew 24, 13, will be saved. You're not saved by perseverance, but if you are saved, you will persevere, which kind of goes back to Alberto's question. First uh, John two nineteen. you won't deny the faith. You will continue to confess Jesus. And that's what these people indeed did in the first century in the midst of great persecution. And that's what true believers will do. 
when people who are confessing Jesus are getting their heads cut off. And so he'll go on and he'll say, because you have kept the word, uh, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I also will keep you from the hour of testing, that hour, which will come, listen, on the whole earth to test those who dwell on the earth. There has never been in recorded history. And by the way, I think it's interesting. We only have 6,000 years of recorded history. We don't have recorded history going back 100 million years. We have 6,000 years of recorded history. And uh, I think that's the time frame from, from the creation of the world. Now, there are people who want to say, well, we've been here for millions and millions of years, even Christians, and um, they're, they're just confused. But God is going to keep the church. You say, well, that's just the church of Philadelphia. No, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So this is not just what he said to the church at Philadelphia. He's saying to every local fellowship that if you have the marks of genuine conversion, I will keep you from the hour of testing that will come upon the whole earth. There has never been in the history of man an hour of testing that has come upon the whole planet. Now, are some of the things that are happening in the world today significant? Yes, uh, we were speaking about this last week on the radio. This just shows there's a pregnancy. Before a woman can go into labor, she's got to be pregnant. And so maybe we've got some Braxton Hicks uh, contractions that are taking place in our world today. But these are not the birth pangs. And when you put Revelation 24 together with the, uh, the seal judgments of Revelation 6, the first uh, verses 3 through 14 perfectly match the seal judgments. Then there's a, an event right in the middle of the seven years called the abomination of desolation, which Paul describes where the Antichrist goes in the temple and defiles it. And then the trumpet and bold judgments fall. It fits perfectly right down to the second coming where every eye will see him. All right, good question. 843-525-1859. If you have a question on today's Bible line, Nate from Orange, California, says Romans 3.11 makes it clear that nobody seeks God. They all have the knowledge of God, but they suppress that knowledge because of sin, according to Romans 1 and 2. The only way we'll ever have a relationship with God is if God seeks us first. And he references John 6.44. Is it possible then that God can save somebody before they make the decision to suppress the truth of him? Let's say, for example, there's a 12-year-old who now can fully comprehend the law and grace. Is it possible that God saves him before he chooses to suppress the truth? Or does everyone suppress the truth before God saves them? It's a, it's a good question. So let me read uh, Romans chapter 3. He quotes from a series of different passages in the Old Testament. If you're using the New American Standard, it's all like in capital letters, which tells you it's an Old Testament quote. And that's helpful and that when you come to passages like that, if you have a edition of the Bible with cross-references, I help you to find these. And by the way, if you come to a Meet the Pastor meeting, which we host usually a couple times a month, you'll get a beautiful New American Standard Bible with cross-references for free, courtesy of an anonymous family. But it says, There is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. So you're referencing here the second half of Romans 3.11. He goes on to say, all have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of apps 
is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. In the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And so this brother from Orange County, and there's a city in Orange County called Orange. I was in California last week. Um, he is asking a really critical question. And what Paul is describing here in Romans three ten through 18 is what we refer to as the doctrine of total depravity. And so he highlights different body parts to show the extent of the depravity of man. For instance, he speaks of our eyes, our lips, our tongues, our feet, uh, because every aspect of man has been tainted by sin. The doctrine of total depravity does not say that man is as bad as he can be, but that man is as bad off as he can be. And so by nature, there is none who seeks God. And you see this right at the beginning of the fall in Genesis 3, 9, God comes into the garden. He says, where are you, Adam? Now, you would have thought that it would have been Adam saying, oh, oh, Lord God, dear God, where, where are you? No, uh, Adam is hiding in his shame and his guilt. It's not Adam seeking God. It's God seeking Adam. And the only reason that you and I seek God before we're saved is because God first sought us. Now, it may appear in the illustration you use of a 12-year-old boy that he didn't seem to rebel against God. Um, Maybe in answer to his parents' prayers, uh, he just had an openness to God from the time he was a little boy. But that does not diminish his nature. He was still a non-seeker. Now, in response to a parent's prayer, because God wants us to raise up a godly heritage, that little child from a tender age may have had an appetite for the things of God, but that's only because God was the first mover. So John will write in 1 John 4, we already referenced it this morning, by this the love of God was manifested in us, that God sent his only begotten son into the world. Why? So that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son. So it's God to the rescue. And it doesn't matter if you're six or 60, if you sought God, it's only because he first sought you. Paul will write to the Corinthians, by his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. And I think every testimony should reflect that. When a person says, well, I became a Christian because I had all these questions and I started reading, you know, this apologist or that apologist. And I was, you know, convinced myself that there is a God and that the Bible is true and da, da, da. Look, the only reason you even had a desire to read maybe something on Christian apologetics is because God was seeking you. Don't take any credit for your conversion. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus, and we ought to be eternally grateful for that. Uh, Paul is quoting Psalm 14, all have turned aside, all have become useless. Then he says, there's not any who does good, there's not even one. Now remember, God's definition of good is different from our definition of good. If uh, if I want to make a fruit salad and I get the freshest strawberries and blueberries and raspberries and apples and fresh cream and put it all together, all that I purchased there up at the Costco where they got an incredible, you know, fruit selection, and then I go to mix it up with a hand that's covered in runny sores and infections, I wouldn't want to eat it, and I don't think you would either. 
But that's basically what we do in our sin nature is we contaminate. We contaminate the good things that we do. So to say that you're saved before, well, that's hyper-Calvinism. And I say hyper-Calvinism because not every Calvinist believes that. But you have a certain group of Calvinists who say that you're born again, you're regenerated before you believe. That's just nonsense. That's just a twisting of the Scripture. That's just defending a system that is false and inaccurate. No, you also have to, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having believed, you were sealed with him, with the spirit of promise. So you're regenerated the moment you believe. But that doesn't mean that the spirit of God doesn't work before you are born again. Indeed, he does. I We had a man who came to meet the pastor on Sunday night, and I try to call every visitor if they give me that option. And I called him on Saturday, and he said, yeah, I'm, you know, really kind of excited about this Christianity thing. And he had gotten a MacArthur study Bible. And he said, you know, I'm reading the notes there. And I said, well, you know, you know, I've just learned as a pastor uh, through experience that you don't assume anything. And I said, well, let me ask you a question. How sure are you if you're to die right now that you go to heaven? He said 70%. He was 70% sure. Well, what do you think you'd have to do to be 100? He didn't know. Was he saved yet? No. Was God working in his heart? Yes. He was seeking God because God first sought him. So he came Sunday night to meet the pastor, and I said, where, where are you now? He said, I'm 100. He crossed the line. And so what was happening really is maybe analogous to a woman who's pregnant. A seed is planted. She gestates for nine months. She goes into labor, and she delivers a baby. I remember a woman being in my office one day, and she was very pregnant, you know, in my early years of ministry and marriage. I asked on two occasions, oh, when are you expecting? Only to find out that these dear women were not expecting. Um, So, you know, unless you're really sure, don't ask. But I was absolutely convinced, obviously. And I said, when are you due? She said, I was due yesterday. In fact, the very next day, she gave birth to a baby. And as she stood there in, or sat there in my office, several times her little dress shook, her maternity clothes, because that baby was kicking. Now, if I asked her if her pregnancy was real, she would have said it's very real. But it became all the more real the next day when she could hold the baby, kiss the baby, feed the baby, and so on. Well, before you're saved, God progressively gets real. And the verse you referenced from John 6 44, uh, no one can come to the Father unless the Father draws him. Uh, When he, the Spirit of truth, comes, Jesus said he'll convict the world of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And so this young man who came was in gestation. God was drawing him, but he hadn't crossed the line yet. He had to believe, and the only thing he lacked was a knowledge of what it meant to believe. You know, many times people who are 60 or 70% sure are thinking that way because in the back of their mind, they don't think they're good enough. Well, I've got news for you. None of us are. And until you admit that you are not good enough and never can be good enough because there's none who seeks God. No, not one. There's none who does good, which we just quoted from the Psalms and from Romans 3. Then you won't see your need for a Savior. But when you put your rest, your faith, your confidence and the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ to sufficiently save you and change you and forgive you, then everything changes and God becomes even more real. 
because he comes to live inside of you and you, you become a temple of the Holy Spirit. All right, good question. Let's go to the next one. I think we've got time for one more. Debbie from Jasper County writes, in 2 Samuel 12, 31, did David torture the people of Rabbah, or as some commentators say, he put them to hard labor? Well, let me uh, just open 2 Samuel 13. Uh, this is an interesting passage. He also brought out the people. He's been in this battle. He brought out the people who were in it and set them under saws, sharp iron instruments and iron axes and made them pass through uh, the brick kiln. Uh, Thus he did to all the cities of the sons of Ammon. Then David and all the people returned to Jerusalem. So some have said that, you know, David tortured his enemies and that he put them under saws, under axes, literally. Again, uh, context, context is everything, and knowing who David is, I don't think he took any pleasure in, uh, you know, taking a saw, say, and cutting someone in two. That's what unbelievers did, potentially, to Isaiah, uh, at least traditionally. We're told that's how he died, but the writer of the Hebrews speaks of those who've been sawn in two by unbelievers. I think the NASB, the New King James, correctly renders it. Um, the New King James, a little bit of interpretive translation, it says here, he put them to work with saws and iron picks and iron axes and made them cross over to the brick works. I think that's really what's in view. The NIV similarly paraphrases a little bit as well. So I don't think the writer is saying that he literally tortured him, but he did what they needed to have done with Remember, these were a vicious vicious people. They were enemies of God and enemies of God's people. And so what he did was not cruel by putting them to work. It was just trying to, rather than just executing them, uh, they put them to work in hard work and hard labor, um, kind of like they used to do in prisons before they had whirlpool baths and televisions and, you know, steak dinners with lobster and everything else they give prisoners today. All right. Uh, I think we're about out of time. I did mention that we're going to Israel, God willing, in May of 2022. And so we uh, rescheduled the trip due to COVID, but we are planning to go. Uh, in May of 2022, you can go to org, and you can get information on the Israel trip or you can go to communitybiblechurch.us and get information there as well. And if you have questions, there's a phone number uh, that you can uh, call and we will answer each of your questions. It's the experience of a lifetime. So it's in May, but uh, the registration will close in March. Uh, because 90 days before the nation of Israel needs to know who's coming into their country because they're pretty particular and they do a lot of background research and information. Anyway, thanks for joining us this day for the Bible line. I hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ.